Grab your Bibles, uh, find your way over to Genesis chapter 8 this morning again, and we'll finish up uh, chapter 8 today. Now last week we focused on the flood water that was slowly, very, very slowly receding. We focused on the, the struggle it is to be waiting on, on the Lord, waiting on His timing. Uh, we focused on our desire to be sovereign over how our lives go and acknowledging that uh, we need to cede that to the Lord. We, we focused on God remembering Noah and God remembering his promises to you who are his children in the faith. And if you remember where we stopped, it was just as Noah and his family and all the creatures stepped off the ark into the new recreated earth. Um, somewhat recreated earth, right? Uh, so today we have just a very short passage, just three verses here, but don't, don't let you think that there's not much to that. There are three verses with enormous, enormous importance to our, uh, the, the history of redemption, right? God's work of salvation out throughout history. Now, uh, let's read the passage, and then we'll jump into it. And we're going to be reading beginning in, in chapter 8, verse 20. All right. And then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. And so I, I ask of you this morning, please make my heart to be humble before you, that you might give me grace to preach your word faithfully and joyfully this morning. And I, I ask you to give us all humble hearts, all, all who will hear your word today, whether in this gathering or anywhere else on the planet, Lord. May we receive from your hand that which you have to teach us by way of explanation and exhortation, by way of rebuke and encouragement, by way of receiving your word as your word. Holy Spirit, would you nourish us, or nourish in us today, rather, Lord, would you nourish in us hearts and minds which are committed to worshiping you in this service today and in this life that we are given to live. And Spirit, would you please push away and, and silence all internal distractions that, that seek to, to keep us from, from hearing your word ex exposited this morning, preached this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So overwhelmingly, American Christians in the 21st century have treated gathering for worship as a luxury. Something we enjoy to do, that's for sure, right? Uh, something we, we do when we have time for it, when it doesn't interfere with travel plans or, or, or kids' sports schedules or important exams or just sleeping in because you stayed up too late the night before. And I'm very aware that I'm, I'm speaking to you who are here gathered to worship this morning, right? You who have clearly made the priority today to be here to worship the Lord. And, and, and I say that, right? And, and, and just so you understand, don't, don't hear this as a heavy-handed guilt trip of some sort, so much as just a, a thought-provoking observation about how do we treat worship in the church today. Now listen, a, a few years back, I, I had a student 
um, who had trouble making it to our service, and in talking to him one time, he was like, I really want to come, but it's just too early in the morning. 10 o'clock is too early in the morning, he was trying to tell me. Uh, and, and talking with him, right, it's a, it's a light thing. I told him, you know, you could go to bed at 1 o'clock a.m. in the morning and sleep for eight hours and still have a whole hour to get up, eat breakfast, get dressed, and, and get here. And, and of course, I, I softened it with a laugh with him. I'm not an absolute monster here. Um, and he agreed with everything he said. You're right, you're right, right? But, but the regularity of his gathering for worship didn't improve at all. It didn't improve because it was never really about the time of worship to begin with. It was about the priority of worship. And I know that's extreme, right? Not what we're typically dealing with. And yet I, I wonder if this mindset of, of worship as a luxury, if it's infected all of us to, to a lesser degree, myself included, right? Our view of corporate worship is, is certainly different today than we have seen of Christians that are living in other places, Christians that were living in other times. It's, you know, in the first few centuries, the Christians in Rome, because of persecution, they would gather to worship God in the middle of the night, right? The dead of night. And they would gather among the literal dead as they met in the catacombs, under, these underground tunnels where the dead bodies were actually kept. During seminary, uh, I learned firsthand accounts of Christians in China that would gather at like 3 a.m. in the morning, right? Because that was the safest time they could do it so they could worship God. And they were always amazed because they'd come back and they would see all the way the church works in America and they'd tell us, you know, people would do it. They'd get up at 3 a.m. in the morning, they'd sneak off, find a way to get into this gathering place, and, and we didn't provide warm coffee or a children's program of any sort. And, you know, they said, well, what did you provide? Well, we provided suggested routes to get away if the authorities show up. It's a very different world. I remember when the, the war in Ukraine began. Maybe you remember these pictures, too, or these videos, rather, of um, you, you think they're in the midst of an invasion, of all the things that they need to be focusing on, all the tasks that they have, and yet here we're seeing these Christians with a war going on outside their walls still gathering together to worship God. It's such a different mentality. Now, as we look here, right, as Noah and his family are disembarking the ark, it is not difficult to imagine just how many important tasks need to be done, what, what we need to do just survive that are incredibly important, right? They needed to get down the mountain. They needed to find a place to settle. They needed to, to build a home, a shelter. They needed to gather good food, uh, right? The list could go on and on for quite a while and, and all very reasonable things to do, important things to do, and and, and that's, you know, why when I read this, as a 21st century American myself, I find it surprising that the first thing they do, and the first thing that Noah leads his family in is to walk out and build an altar and, and make a sacrifice to the Lord. In other words, Noah leading his family here, he makes worship a priority. He wants to worship the God who has saved him from the flood. And this pattern of prioritizing worship is seen throughout the scriptures. Just a few chapters later in Genesis 12, 8, right? The Lord shows Abraham that the promised land, or Abram at the time, the promised land. And immediately afterwards, we read this. Uh, Abram built an altar to the Lord. He worshiped. You remember the story, right? When, when God delivers his people from, from Pharaoh and, and slavery and, Egyptian, and, and the Egyptians and they, they go across the Red Sea on dry land and afterwards they get to the other side and you think, well, just keep going, right? But after God defeated Pharaoh's army, their enemies, God's people gathered together and they sang a song of worship to the Lord. And you think about the New Testament. Paul and Silas, they're in prison. 
It's unjust. I mean, if you put yourself in that place, how angry you'd be, how frustrated you'd be, how tired and hungry you probably are at this time. And, but what do we hear they do? They're singing. They're worshiping the Lord. And I just find that so different than my own mentality when I'm frustrated and tired and whatever it might be, right? And so Noah here, right, sets an example to God's people in every place and all time to prioritize even our busy lives with the worship of the Lord. Now, he also sets an example by worshiping God in the manner that is prescribed by God. If you look back at, to verse 20 here, you, you see Noah built an altar, and, and he makes what is called a burnt offering here, right? This is the first time we've seen the term burnt offering, uh, but it shows up later in the scriptures. It's explained in a lot of places, right? Now, it's safe to assume at this point that at some earlier time, the Lord has explained to Noah what a burnt offering is. Otherwise, this makes no sense. He, that he's instructed him, here's how sacrifices work. Here's how they're made. This is how Noah knows what are clean animals, despite the list of clean animals not being codified as of yet. Noah knows how to properly worship God, and that's how Noah worshiped God. And so we have this question, well, what's a burnt offering, right? Noah would have built a, a mound of some sort, maybe dirt, probably a, a pile of rocks with a flattish top that you'd make on it. You'd put a fire up on there. Uh, that, that's the altar. Then animals were, were killed, and they were placed on that fire. And their idea is, here, we're giving this to, to you, God. Now, we learned later on, right, in, in chapter 1 of Leviticus, that burnt offerings are, are simply because someone desires to make one to God, to worship God, to show their dedication, to show their devotion to God, to express gratitude to God. And in other words, it's not required by some law. It's not like, well, it says here, you get off the ark, you got to build this thing, we got to do... I know we got things to do, let's just get this out of the way, right? It, it's not that. Even later when we learn all the details about the sacrificial system, right? It's not the way that a burnt offering works. And so that's not what's going through Noah. It's not reluctantly giving to God. Uh, Noah truly desires to give these animals to God, which is a big deal. Because animals at this time, they're like currency. They're like wealth. It's, it's not like, like Noah and his family is coming off this and they're incredibly rich in animals at this point. At least not the clean animals. And they got to keep the other pairs to go, right? Uh, so Noah is here expressing thanksgiving and devotion to God. And, and the two most obvious comparisons for us would be to, to give money that we have saved or freed up to God or to godly uses, right? Or, or to give of our time, to give of it as a sacrifice as opposed to acting like maybe someone has robbed us of that time and taken it from us. And when we talk about that, we mean like in service to the Lord or in the service to somebody else by, by serving them in the way the Lord calls us to and in his name. Now, now, there are other types of offerings besides the burnt offering. Jeremy's been uh, telling us some of these as he's working his way through the book of Leviticus. And, and, and some offerings are, are more of what you might call a barbecue, okay? Uh, for instance, uh, the peace offering, explained in Leviticus 7, right? Some inedible parts of the animals put on the altar, and that gets burned to a crisp. It's gone. But some of the better pieces, the meaty portions, right, that are tasty... They were cooked up and they were eaten by the priests. They were eaten by, uh, by the worshipers themselves. And you can see there, you might have some ulterior motives for doing that. Uh, but not so with the burnt offering. It's very different because here the burnt offering, the entire animal is burnt to ashes. 100%, even the delicious, juicy parts were burnt completely to ash. And it'd be easy to ask, well, why? What a waste of animal, right? What a, who does that to a tenderloin? What's wrong with you people? And, and the reason is because the complete consuming of the animal symbolized this, this yielding of your all, this yielding of your entire self, every last bit to the Lord, which is fitting, fitting given that Noah has just been preserved by God through a flood. 
He understands his life should be over by this. We, we, we see this often in near-death moments for people. People often just respond this way. You think of, of Martin Luther, right? Martin Luther, who sparked the, the Protestant Reformation. When he was still young, he was training to be a lawyer, and while he was traveling to the German village of, of Stod Stodernheim, he found himself caught in this terrifying thunderstorm. He doesn't go into great details, but based on the story, you imagine he, he assumed he was going to die in this lightning storm. Um, and in the moment, he being a Roman Catholic at the time, he made this vow to St. Anne. That was the, the most holy thing he knew to do. Saying, if I survive this terrifying uh, storm, I will become a monk. I will dedicate my entire life, basically, if I survive this. And he does survive. And true to his word, Martin joins the, the Augustinians and becomes a monk. And there's a whole another story after that, most of you know. But for Luther, that was a willing sacrifice to God in gratitude for his life being spared. Now, Noah's burnt offering here is emphasizing the giving of himself wholly to God. I don't even think that's a concept we understand well, but that's, that's what's going on here. He's saying, Lord, all of my life, all of it is yours. Everything in my life is yours. And, and since the, the once for all perfect sacrifice of Jesus our Lord upon the cross, uh, the, the, the altar of the cross, right, we no longer make animal sacrifices. Don't go home, don't make the pile, don't do it. That's just a barbecue. It will not be a sacrifice. But, but, but you know, even though we're no longer making these animal sacrifices because it's all fulfilled in Christ, and yet in the New Testament we often hear these, this term sacrifice of giving ourselves to God, of giving ourselves completely to the Lord. I'll give you a few here. Listen to this. Hebrews 13, 15. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And maybe it's a general sense of sacrifice in that one, but they're not all that way. 1 Peter 2, 5, where we are called here to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And Peter goes on there to explain there's a, a godly way of living, a way of living in conformity to God's word, right, that embodies this, this pleasing sacrifice that he is speaking of. The, the Apostle Paul, after receiving financial gifts that will provide for ongoing mission work in Philippians 4.18, Paul refers to their financial gifts as, and I quote here, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And more in line with, with what we're seeing here, this all-consuming offering of oneself in the burnt offering is what Paul says in Romans 12.1 when he writes this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do you ever think of your life, your body, as a living sacrifice, to the Lord. I mean, after all, God has saved you from the wrath that you deserve, from the, the flood of fire. Well, I mean, what would it look like to give your, yourself wholly, that's with a W, wholly, or with an H, to the Lord? Now, this doesn't have to mean you become a monk like Luther. It doesn't mean you have to be a pastor, a missionary, or, or something in vocational ministry. You, you, you can give your whole self to the Lord with abandon and still be a mother, or a student, a soldier, whatever it is you, you call yourself when people ask that question, you know, what do you do kind of thing. You know, we, we can sacrificially offer to the Lord ourselves, our, our bodies, our minds, our actions, our, our gifting and focus and money and time and devotions, all expressed right through, through worship, through service, and to the best of our Holy Spirit-empowered ability, living in accordance with God's Word. 
You know, aligning our thoughts, aligning our actions with God. Submitting our, our purposes to the purposes of the Lord. So serving others in love, generously giving our time and attention to sit and to listen to someone. This, this is all a proper response to the mercy and grace of our Lord. So the question arises here, Christian, do you desire to surrender your, your blood-bought body and soul to God? And, and what might that look like for you? That's a, a question I want you thinking about. Now there is one more aspect of Noah's burnt offering for us to see here. It's what's called a, often a, a propitiation. That's a 40-point Scrabble word that means, uh, it means this, the removing of God's wrath by offering an acceptable sacrifice. In Romans 3.35, we, we read that Jesus was put forward as a propitiation by his blood to, to be received by faith, a sacrifice that was acceptable to God. Now, now Genesis 8 foreshadows what Jesus will be doing for us, and, and, and Noah does this, right, because he knows that, that he and his family, they have a serious sin problem. It's not going away, right? Which was probably a scary realization if you think we just got off a boat, we were saved from the wrath of God, right? From, from everyone drowning because of all the sin that was, that was in people on the planet. And he's thinking, I just got off the boat with my family and I've been on there, crammed in there for an entire year. He has no doubt that there are a bunch of sinners by now. You could imagine what it would be like if you did the same. So he's got to wonder, what's going to keep God from doing this again? We, we don't usually like the way this sounds, right? But Noah wants to appease God's hatred for sin. And so he makes this, this blood sacrifice. It's a, a sacrifice we, we would have seen before, right? When, when Noah's long ago uh, relative, Abel, would have done this. And now this is all a, a little vague at this point, but the blood of animals serving as a means of appeasing God's justice will be made clear in the opening chapters of Leviticus. Right? You can go back and listen to Jeremy's first sermon if you want to get a little more info on that. Uh, for now, though, the sacrifice is a tangible expression as Noah's, Noah is acknowledging that he is a sinner, that he desires to be at peace with God, that he desires to be in communion with God. And, and when Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, the foundation of Jesus' statement there is the sacrificial blood of Christ on your behalf, that Jesus is a propitiation. That Jesus is an acceptable sacrifice that removes God's just wrath for sin. And so Noah has made this offering to God, but this question remains, doesn't it? Would God accept this? Because he didn't know, right? You, you ever cooked for someone, baked for someone, and you put it before them, and you're like, oh, are they going to like it? Are they going to please it? Is this your favorite thing ever? You can tell your brother about this, right? And, and I mean, I, I told you all a while back, we as a family, we visited that new humongous Roman Catholic church building in St. Mary's. It's got this great name, the Immaculata, right? It's beautiful in its own way. It really is a beautiful building. Now, uh, as we went on it, we had this guy giving us a, a tour guide, and, and you could tell he really wanted to press us. He was telling us all about how much gold's in this, and this, and this, and how many of this, and the cry room could fit like 400 million children, and all this kind of stuff. And eventually, he brought us to what was the, the last thing, like, let us show you what we really have here. And that was this section of relics. And a, a relic are these physical items that are associated with, with saints, with Jesus, with Mary, and, and the such. And, and, and as I was looking at this thing that looked a lot like the, the holy hand grenade, um, I was listening to our, our guide who was trying to impress Laura. And I had gotten a little, little distance so I could just kind of hear this. And, and he says to her, 
Here is a piece of the actual wood from the cross that Jesus was sacrificed on. And now you and I both know it's not the actual cross, but that's not the story here. And, and so now this question is lingering in, in the air for just a moment. Would this woman, would Laura, my wife right here, would she be impressed by this? Would she be impressed by it? And I mentioned to see how it goes, and I'm just sitting back thinking, oh, this will be fun, um, watching it. And, and Laura's response, here's what it is. Laura says, what else you got? It was all I could do not to just burst out laughing, right? Because the look on his face was very confused as to why the actual wooden cross that Jesus was sacrificed on, why that didn't please her, why she wasn't impressed by that. What else you got? Right? I mean, who says that? Right? And, and you knew, how do you answer that? Because, right, if, if you're not impressed by the actual wooden cross that Jesus was sacrificed on, then I don't think the socks of some dead Italian guy are going to impress you either. So, so why tell this story, right? Well, two reasons. The one's just to throw Laura under the bus. Um, that's always fun. But the second one is this, that, that, that Noah made this sacrifice without knowing for sure. Again, is God going to receive this? Is he going to care about these clean animals that I threw up on this altar and burned, right? Would, would, would even just the complete burning of them and all the symbolism that goes with that, would this please God? Would it appease God's wrath? Or, or would God again flood the world when, when Noah and his children proved to be sinners just like those before? Well, will you look at verse 21 right here. The, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. Okay, the, the Hebrew word here for pleasing, it's, it's related actually to Noah's name. Uh, both of which carry this idea of rest, this idea of tranquility. Uh, and and this, this anthropomorphism, we talked about that last week or the week before, right? This idea of, of speaking in human terms that make God make sense, right? Not that God has a big nose up there smelling it, but, you know, things that we understand. And, and that God smells and found the aroma pleasing. What this means is that God accepts the offering. He receives it. Following this is the grace of God to mankind, we'll see here, right? The, the curtain is pulled back a little bit, right? Because we're told what God says in his heart. Now, now get this, he says it, he'll say similar thing to Noah later out loud, but at this point he says it in his heart, and it's recorded here. I, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Now, we learn a few things here. First of all, God is promising to never curse the ground, right? Does that mean that, that the curse in Genesis 3.17 is lifted, that it's gone, that, that bringing food from the ground, that work would no longer be painful and difficult? I wish, but it does not. It's actually a completely different Hebrew word in verse 21 here. You probably see the footnote in your Bible there that compares it more to like dishonor, uh, right? Dishonor the ground. What, what God means by that is that uh, it's really what he explains in the rest of the sentence here. It, quite simply, God's promising to never again flood the earth, killing everyone and everything. And this is good. You want to hear this if you're Noah. This is grace. Because the situation hasn't changed, right? You see, God intends here to deal with sin in a different manner. And not because, again, man and woman has changed. They're no better. That, that's clear in the way that God's statement here. Uh, about the intentions of man's heart. It echoes what God said before the, the, the flood, right? Back in Genesis 6, 5, you remember that? Which was this, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. Listen, God is God. He knows full well that Noah and his descendants aren't going to be sinless from here on out. A second chance isn't really what they needed. In fact, many of them are going to be more corrupt than those who drowned in the flood. 
drowned in the flood. Now, now John Calvin once said, if God was going to continue to deal with sin by flooding the earth, there would be a daily flood. I remember when Beckham was a little boy, after learning about the sacrifices of the Old, the Old Testament for sin, um, he was telling us, I think he'd learned it in Sunday school, and he said, I'm, I'm glad that we don't have to still make animal sacrifices, because if we did, I'd never get to play. And we're like, why wouldn't you get to play? Because I'd have to get right back in line right afterwards, because I'm going to sin again. And, and that was the idea, that over and over again, if that's the way it works. Now, now you see that the flood, it didn't resolve the fundamental problem of sin, of Original sin, right? That, that, that we are sinful in our very nature, or, or as God says here, right? The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That, that's not teenage years, like we tend to use the word youth today. God, God means that we are evil from the very start, even as newborn babies who can't act on it. Right? You're not going to actively see it, but we are born with these sinful natures that are going to, to of course, produce sin in our lives. That's reality. And at the very heart, what we see in God here is, is, is what he's revealing here ultimately is that mercy will be the primary solution to the problem of sin. Grace, not because we've earned grace, but grace because God has ordained grace. And God is holy, God is just, God hates sin, yes, and, and he will pour out his wrath on sinners, that is all true, but God is also merciful, merciful to his bride, to, to the church, to his people. I mean, listen to this from Ephesians 2.4. God, God being rich in mercy, right? That's the only place in the scripture that God has ever called rich in anything. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with him. By grace, you have been saved. And in our passage, we, we see as the, the British scholar John Golden Gay put it, God's grace operates not despite human sin, but because of human sin. Right? If we didn't have sin, we wouldn't need grace. But we do, and so we do. Now, now at the beginning of verse 21, God promises to never flood the, verse, and at the, uh, the earth. And at the end of verse 21, God extends this act of mercy further. Not only will he not destroy all of life, God won't end all of life any other way. Which means, right, it's not going to end by earthquakes or hurricanes or everyone doing Tide Pod challenges or zombie virus infection spreading around the world. And so, so God builds on this even then in verse 22 by affirming that there will be regular patterns of life on this earth. Seed time and harvest. Right? That's about food that's going to, to grow and provide for life. Cold and heat, summer and winter, that's about God keeping the seasons and keeping the seasons in, the, in their order. We, we've come to just think, oh, that's just the way things work. And it is the way things work because the Lord does it that way. But aren't you thankful that after this winter that it's not going to just go into fall and then back into to winter again? I don't know if I could handle that. We're going to get summer, spring, and then summer, and then, then day and night here, right? This is of greater significance to them. They don't have a bunch of lights to turn on. That after darkness comes light, day after day, night after night. And in all these pattern, predictable things in nature, they're not the work of some fictional mother nature. You know, they're not just random. They're acts of kindness from our merciful God. In short, this is about... God promising to preserve life on earth. This is what is often called, and we've spoken of this recently, but common grace. We see it here. Meaning the, the goodness and blessing that God bestows upon all people regardless of their faith, regardless of their, their sin or the amount of it or anything like that. As, as Jesus said 
of God the Father in Matthew 5, 45, he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends his rain on the just and the unjust. Or, or as the psalmist affirms in Psalm 145, 9, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that's made. And, and so common grace is the grace of God to all of humanity. But there is another kind of grace, another sort of grace that is often called special grace or redemptive grace. And redemptive grace is the work that God has done through Christ on the cross and the resurrection in the hearts of some to bring about the forgiveness of sin. And in one sentence, common grace provides for life, whereas redemptive grace provides for eternal life. Now, obviously, redemptive grace is of, of greater importance. If you had to be like, which one of these is good, is best, right? You're going to go with that. But don't let that devalue common grace at all. In fact, common grace serves, as the, greater, you know, the, the, serves the greater purpose of redemptive grace. Kind of like water in the river is probably not as important as what you're trying to deliver from a boat, the cargo, right? But it makes the way for it to be delivered. Common grace makes a way for the history of redemption to unfold, for, for human flourishing, including the Roman highways, right? That allowed the gospel to spread quickly after the resurrection of Christ. Or, or the printing press that, you know, it did so again during the, the uh, you know, the Reformation, right? Or, or antibiotics that keep people alive long enough that they can hear the gospel. These all make way for the gospel to spread to those who need to hear it. As Richard Phillips beautifully words it, the concerns of common grace are very significant. Christians, are, are, are greatly, are, are, Christians care greatly about the kind of government under which they live. They, they wish to promote good health care so that people may live long lives. They cultivate education which trains minds for biblical truth and care for the arts which convey the beauty of creation and redemption. Phillips goes on to say this, God's common grace remains today the handmaiden of the redemptive grace in Christ until the last of God's elect people are gathered to the gospel. In other words, we as Christians should care about the common good of our culture, our planet. But, but the focus of Christ's church must be on the preaching and the sharing of the gospel to sinners. You know, we, we are to gather the saints of God into his church for the worship of God. And we are called to disciple God's people in the scriptures. You see, to this end, in the last chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus instructs his disciples with those, you know, now famous words, the, the Great Commission, where he says, All authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, common grace is the highway for redemptive grace. Now, this brings us to our last little bit that we haven't addressed yet. It's just this weird, curious little phrase. Verse 22, you see it, while the earth remains. All right? You hear what that means? God is going to keep the world running, but there will be an end to the earth, and then judgment. While the earth remains. At that time, only those who whose sin is forgiven by the sacrifice of Jesus upon the, the cross, only those will enter into God's eternal rest. The wrath of God appeased. Which raises that question, is that you? I mean, have you been spared the flood of God's judgment by the blood of Christ? And, and so then, Christian, how are you to respond to God's mercy in the gospel? Right? We pull it out of where we see Noah and the way he responds. How are we to respond to the to the mercy of God to us in the gospel. Like, like Noah, with full hearts that prioritize worship, by the, the, the consecrated 
willing giving of our bodies, our thoughts, our all to God? And I hope so. I, I hope that's it. That, that is honestly what I long for, for, for you, for, for me. That, that's certainly where this passage has led me as I've studied it this week. To, to figure out that question, what does it look like to give all that I am to the Lord who has saved my soul? Maybe just the question, what, what am I giving now, right? Not because, not to earn anything from God. I've already got his mercy. I've already got his love in the gospel. But in that gratitude and, and wanting to walk in the way that we see, you know, God's people in the scripture do, you know, what does it look like to give all that I am to the Lord? And I'll end with that. I, I want that for us all. I hope that'll be a question you will, you will take serious consideration on today and this week going forward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now in confidence, show us your glory. Oh, Holy Spirit, through the special revelation of your timeless word, through the general revelation of your fantastical creation, show us your glory. For that is what we need to see. That is what we need to know if we are going to make the worship of you the highest priority of our lives here on earth. That, that is what we need to believe if we are ever to joyfully give of ourselves in gratitude for your grace. And this, Lord, we ask boldly in Jesus' name, knowing that in his glorious name, you, you love to hear us and you love to give us what we ask for in your name. Amen.